but we are going to finish chapter 6 tonight because I'm, I'm determined to get us through 11. And it's important, too. Uh, you'll, you'll see that in the context of what we talk about. It. I just think it's very important. Um, before we get to Genesis 6, let's go to the Father in prayer. God, you are so awesome. You are so good to us. You take such amazing care of us, Father, and your grace, your grace is something that we can't even understand. Unmerited favor, we, we come up, Lord, with all kinds of words to try and describe or explain your grace, but there are no words that truly explain the depth of your love for us, the decision that you made from the very beginning, even at the point that, at which, Father, you were cursing the serpent, that you inserted that promise that, that one would come of a seed of woman, that Jesus would come. Even while man was in the middle of just blowing it, for the very first time, you were laying out the plan that you had from before the creation of man. And that plan was to save us. That grace which is so eternal, Father, and, and so, so welcome in our lives. We just thank you and praise you for it. We thank you and, and praise you and honor you tonight. We pray that, that the study of your word tonight would bring honor and glory to your name. That we would walk out of here, Lord, just that much more amazed that you are Father, our Creator. And Father, I pray that you'll keep our minds sharp. That for the time that we are in Genesis chapter 6 tonight, that, that we would be clear-minded and, and clear-thinking. That we would see things. Father, I pray that your Spirit would teach us things that we ourselves aren't even expecting. Father, I pray that for all those who are listening to the teaching tonight, that your Spirit will teach things that I don't even say. Things that are in Scripture, things that they will come upon on their own. Um, reveal, Father, mysteries and, and just tantalize our minds. But, Father, go beyond that and, and continue to grab hold of our hearts. Draw our hearts into this study and into your Word. Fill us up, Father, with the words that you laid out. And may we grow and be closer to you because of them. And may we also, Father, be able to recognize the times in which we live a little more effectively because of these words as well. So go with us, Father, into our study tonight. We lift the study up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to spend some time getting to know you. Getting to know you. Getting to know what. We're going to get to know us. And we're going to learn some things. And what I want to do right off the bat is, is tell you four things to know about Noah. Four things that you just need to know going into the study of chapter 6. And to do that, we back up to chapter 5, verse 28, which tells us Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And now he called his name Noah, saying, and here's a prophecy, prophecy of Lamech, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Four things to know about Noah. Number one, Noah was a real man. Noah was a real man. Not referring to those who avoid peace. This was a real man in that Noah was a real being. He existed. This is a true persona, a true character in history. A man who lived, who breathed, who walked, who ate, who slept just like we do just several thousand years ago. Noah was a real man. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12. 
tells us, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut it off from both man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. I love that verse. Very interesting. He's, he's delivering a very sobering statement. That if I decide to cut off a country, if a country becomes unfaithful to me that once was faithful to me, America, if I decide to cut that country off, even Noah, Daniel, and Job, if they resided there, could not save it. Now that's a big statement. That is an honoring statement to those three men by God himself. He's saying, Noah, Daniel, Job, these guys were righteous men. So righteous that they almost could help save a country. Except for the fact that I pull my hand that I withdraw from it. Did Noah really build an ark? Can I really trust that Daniel was a prophet? What about Job? Was the story of Job simply a morality play? A fable, an allegorical picture of, of Israel? Some rabbis maintain that it is. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 Referring to Noah, says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reference prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus, referring to Daniel, says, When you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. James chapter 5, verse 11, James wrote, James, the brother of Jesus, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. So, according to men like Ezekiel, Paul, James, and Jesus, other men like Noah, Daniel, and Job were real men. These guys existed. The bottom line here is if you believe the words of Jesus, you have to believe the story of Noah. If you believe the words of Jesus, you have to believe that Daniel was a prophet. If you believe that Jesus truly was, is God, that he walked as God in the flesh, that he spoke, that he was the living word who spoke the word of God, then what Jesus talked about, referring back to the Old Testament, verifies existence of these men. That's the best way to figure out what's going on in the Old Testament is to see what Jesus has to say about it. I've mentioned this in here before. The best Old Testament commentary that's out there is the New Testament. If you want to understand what's going on in the Old, go to the New. And vice versa, if you're in the New and something comes along that's confusing, boy, the book of Revelation. If you don't have a, a handle on the Old Testament, the book of Revelation is very difficult to understand. We spent nine months in that book, and you all, you all know that we're here, how much time we were in the Old Testament to understand the New. What a phenomenal word that we have in our hands. Well, Noah was a real man. Verse 29 of chapter 5 is the prophecy of Lamech, as I said. And he said again, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. So secondly, Noah was a rescued man. Noah was a real man, but he was also a rescued man who in turn was used to rescue man. 
Noah was a rescued man who in turn was used to rescue man. This whole story of the flood is difficult. Especially for those of you who are very compassionate and merciful at heart. Those of you who care for animals. If you've ever, I don't know how many of you have been blessed to be at the Galeros house. We got to go over there and have dinner one night, spend some time with them, and Roberta loves animals. I mean, she has little raccoon, raccoon feeding bins, you know, where, where people, most people are getting out shotguns when raccoons come on the property. She's feeding them. Roberta has that kind of heart. And for someone with that kind of heart to look at the flood, it's difficult. It's difficult to think about the fact that mankind was wicked. Oh, yes, they were wicked, but about all the animals that got wiped out as well. And was it truly the case that every single human being, save eight, were all so wicked that they couldn't, that they were beyond salvation? That God had to literally deluge the world? Sometimes, even with animals, you have to put them down as an act of mercy. I learned this firsthand when I was in elementary school. We had this little fluffy white toy poodle named Jacques. I loved Jacques. He was my favorite little dog. We had so much fun playing together, and he was the fluffiest little dog next to Rudy that I've, I've ever had. Well, I came home from school one day, and Jacques was in the backyard dragging his back legs behind him. And we took him to the vet, and next thing we knew, he had a muscle atrophying disease. All the Crawford dogs, by the way, have died horrible deaths, you know. And Rudy only has one eye, so he's right on, on track with the rest of them. Every single one of them, and that's another story for another time. But Jacques was in bad shape. So my parents took him to the vet the next day that I was at school. I came home and went into the backyard, and there was no Jacques. And my mom came out, put her arm around me, and said, we had to have Jacques put to sleep. I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, well, when's he going to wake up? When's he coming home? No, you don't understand. We had to put him to sleep. He's never going to wake up. We had to kill him. Why would you do that? Because he was suffering. Because he was in pain. Because he was hurting. Folks, there truly is such a thing as mercy killing. And as I think you'll see tonight, the flood was the ultimate act of mercy killing for all humanity. What do you mean? We literally got down to eight people. We were eight people away from being lost for all eternity. But not just us. Go back before Noah. Think about people like Enoch. Remember Enoch walked with God and God took him? He was no more. He was the first person raptured. Guess what? Enoch would not be able to stay with God if God flooded, destroyed the whole earth, if man got so sin sick that there wasn't one righteous person left. By saving Noah and his family, God rescued Enoch. By saving Noah and his family, God rescued Seth. God rescued the people. If you look back in uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 26, it tells us that to Seth also was born a son who was named Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord, or be called by the name of the Lord. All of those people in the generations between Adam and Noah who did believe in God, who did call upon the Lord, would be lost. If God allowed the world to continue the direction it was continuing. Because ultimately, even a righteous guy like Noah would fall. Ultimately, Noah would die. And then his sons, who think about this, Noah's sons grew up in the world that was flooded. That was the world that they knew. The world was in bad shape. 
But you see, Noah was a rescued man who in turn was used to rescue man. Flip in your Bibles real quickly over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the Romans. It's right about there. My Bible is page 135, but that's... Romans chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, Paul is writing, and he's referring to Abraham, who, by the way, is another man who never would have been saved. Had Noah not been saved and God not destroyed. God had to destroy to save. Keep that thought in mind and listen to this. Romans 4.1 What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Hey, listen to this. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. That's the one who works. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, David said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. People like Abraham, Sarah, Enoch, Noah, these people had credited righteousness. Not true righteousness. Credited righteousness. Noah was seen as righteous. Abraham was credited as righteous, not because of anything that they had done, but because they believed in God. It didn't become real righteousness for any of these people until after Jesus died. Because the credits had to be paid off. They had to be paid up. The redemption of those credits had to happen. Without the death of Jesus on the cross, the faith of Abraham is worthless. Without the death of Jesus on the cross, Noah, though he was a good man his whole life, when he died, would have one option of where he went, and that's straight to hell, because he couldn't be good enough. Even if he had a credit of righteousness, the credit is worthless without it being paid for. And that's what happened on the cross. And that's why when the world got down, it got so sick, so evil, so bad, when it got down to eight people, Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives, eight people who still were at least trying, God said, I've got to stop it now, because if I don't, it will never, man will never last long enough to get to Jesus, who is the only hope for all of man. Past, present, future. You see, you you can say, well, of course we wouldn't exist if the whole world was flooded and nobody lived. Of course, if all man was wiped out, if man's sin wiped him out, we wouldn't exist. So, what are you saying? I'm saying that before Noah, anybody who believed in God, their only hope of salvation was Jesus Christ. And if Jesus never came to the world, they would never have been saved. And so God, looking at earth, saw a catastrophe. Eight people left who believed in him. That was all. If there had been more than eight people who believed in God, they would have been on the ark too. 
but it was down to eight. And in those eight, God said, for the sake of humanity, past, present, and future, I've got to clean up this world. I've got to wipe out what is here, and for the sake of those who believe, start over. Noah was a rescued man who in turn was used by God to rescue man. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, But God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. That word quickened, and that's the King James translation, but I love the word quickened because that's what happens. It's, it's as though a, a body that dies, it, it's brought back to life, it's quickened. And Noah's faith, Noah's faith, Abraham's faith, Enoch's faith, was quickened in the crucifixion of Jesus. Brought to life, filled up, made truly righteous. Which is why, and some of you may remember this, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, that in those three days, in between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus went down and he led captivity captive up to be with the Father. Who was captivity captive? I believe it was the Old Testament saints. Men like Noah, who were waiting in the paradise side of Sheol, Hades, waiting for that time when their righteousness, when Jesus' righteousness would be imputed upon them, when their credits would now be cashed in, and they could go and be with the Father because now they were truly righteous by the blood of the Lamb. Now we're starting off in really heavy territory here. But we need to understand that the rescue of Noah, that the deluge, was the greatest act of mercy killing in all of history. Mankind needed to be put down. And Lamech's prophecy that Noah might bring us rest from the work of our hands happened in this quickening, in this reanimating, in this overflowing grace of God in Jesus on the cross. And because of this, the third thing to know about Noah is that he was a righteous dude. Noah was a righteous dude. Genesis 6-9 will tell us, we'll read it again in a little while, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. What an epitaph for living in dark days. Do you think it's hard to live in the world today? <coughs> Have you turned on your television only to see the most recent Victoria's Secret commercial and quickly turn it off? I remember, do you remember the Cross Your Heart Bra commercials? Remember that? Where, where This was like 20, 30 years ago, and I forget what, what the woman's name who was kind of promoted it, but she put the bra on over her shirt. And it was shocking to people. Oh, she's got to put the bra on, you know? And no one wanted, you know, it was horrible. Compare that to the Victoria's Secret commercials of today. Where have we gone? Beyond that, and that, that's, that's nothing compared to the darkness that we know of in our world, in the place that we live. LaDonna, when we were talking just the other night about how hard it is to live for Christ in this world. Not because you don't want to live for Christ, but because nobody else is. Even in our churches sometimes, there's darkness. It breaks my heart, but the reality is, folks, in the Skagit Valley alone, there are very few churches that are even teaching the Bible anymore. Although call themselves churches, they'll refer to Christ and say they're Christians, and, and I'm not condemning them, but I am saying that from the pulpit, it's not being taught. How do you live in dark days? Well, Noah was a righteous dude. He was a man who lived in the darkest days of all of human history. 
that will be matched and it will go further. In that time of the tribulation, it is coming upon the earth, and, and it is coming. In those last seven years, the days on earth will be darker than they were at the time of Noah. But even present day included, the times of Noah were worse than anything we lived in. Take that as encouragement. If Noah can live walking with God righteously, blameless in his days, maybe we can too. Maybe we can too. But again, not because we're good people. Noah's righteousness was not his own. It was given to him because he believed. Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith. Noah being warned about God, warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Again, an heir. He hadn't received that ultimate righteousness until Jesus died on the cross, but he became an heir of righteousness simply because he believed. How do you stand in a dark world? You keep believing. You keep believing. You look to the Father. You listen to the Father and you do what the Father says first before you listen to any man. Well, as we'll see clearly tonight, Noah's faith translated into righteousness. Number four, something else to Noah about Noah. Noah was a radical end times prophet. And this is cool. Noah was an end times prophet. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter tells us that Noah was more than simply a boat builder. He wasn't the forest gump of his day. He was a prophet. But while he spent that 100, 120 years or so building the boat, he was prophesying. Amazing. You've heard the phrase red flag. We all use it every now. Oh, no, that's a red flag. I was in that restaurant and they brought the dinner and the smell was just a serious red flag. I didn't know if I should even eat that. Well, it comes from a very specific international protocol for sailing ships, the red flag. They put the red flag up, and it's still used today, even though we have all sorts of technology, ships especially still use flag signals. Coming in and out of harbor, a ship will use a, a flag that's half red, half white, which basically says that there is a captain who, who is docking the ship, coming in and going out. But the red flag on the ship is always run up, even on our naval vessels today, as a hazard or a warning. Usually when Navy ships are loading munitions, they'll run up the red flag. So that's where that concept comes from. Noah didn't fly a red flag on the ark because the ark was a red flag. The ark itself and the building of the ark was God's way of telling people in that day, something big is coming. Beware. Be ready. What more tangible symbol of how serious God was than a massive boat at a time where it had never rained on the face of the earth? Not yet. The Bible tells us that the way the earth was watered was that there was a mist that kind of came up out of the ground. That that's how the earth was watered. That it was kind of that whole greenhouse effect. And we'll get into the flood next week. But remember we talked about in Genesis chapter 1 the water canopy that surrounded planet Earth that kept it warm and tropical, perfect temperatures, very comfortable. But Noah began building that boat and Peter tells us while building he prophesied the end is coming. Well, so very merciful of God to flood the whole world. A huge boat and a waiting of 120 years. It's pretty merciful. I don't have that kind of patience. What, I give my kids three strikes and they're out. 120 years. 
Well, no, it was an end times prophet. And that's important. Flipping your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 24. Again, flipping back and forth, using the Bible to comment on the Bible. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 37. Jesus is giving what is called the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the Mount of Olives. It's a very famous last week uh, teaching of Jesus. And as he was speaking, he had just finished talking about that parable of the fig tree, or the fig tree that represents Israel. And saying, you know, when the fig tree blossoms, when, when the branches become tender, you know that summer is near. And he makes a comment, he says, hey, this generation will not pass away before all these things have taken place. All of these end time prophecies. Which generation? He's referring, I believe, specifically to the generation alive at the time that the fig tree blossomed. Now, the fig tree which represents Israel has begun to blossom in our day. May 1948, Israel became a nation. Amazing the world. And the fig tree began to blossom Again, well, in Matthew 24, after he's just finished talking about that, Jesus goes on. In verse 37, he tells us some very important things for those of us living in the end times. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. How do we know we're living in the end times? Rick, you talk about that all the time. And obviously, you study Revelation, you're going to think you're living in the end times, whether or not you are. You know, Not necessarily. How do we really know that today, 2003, that we're living in the end times? That these are the last days? Is it just arrogance or cockiness that gets a pastor to stand up and say, the days are waning fast? Or is it possibly Jesus? See, he says that the end times, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now, if Jesus says that, what we can do is we can step back and look at the days of Noah. Learn some things about the days of Noah. See what was going on in the days of Noah. And if we can do that and compare it to our own day, if the two are parallel, then it's a pretty strong indicator that we are, in fact, living in the last days. The whole rest of our time tonight in uh, Genesis chapter 6, we're going to look at whether or not we're truly living in the end times based on the days of Noah. So tuck that thought away. Jesus goes on. He says, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Verse 39, and this is very sobering. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. It's the rapture. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Folks, we don't know the exact day. We don't know the exact time. But we can know the days and we can know the times. Not the day or the time, but the days and the times we can know. Jesus said, just as in the days of Noah. So flip back to Genesis chapter 6. And since Jesus compared Noah's days and times to the last days and to the end times, we can discover, and will, I believe, discover tonight in Genesis 6, several indications of our place in history. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Genesis 6, 1. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, we're going to get into this 
in just a few minutes, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? This has plagued mankind for a long time. Theologians wonder, what, who is it? And there are several different options, most of them probably wrong. Well, all of them, but one option is wrong. We'll figure out which one it is. But, I want you to look at verse 1. Specifically, and this is the first sign of the times. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. The first sign of the times. It tells us, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. First sign of the times, population explosion. A population explosion. So again, track with me. If the days of Noah and the days that we live in are parallel, if truly we can look at Noah's day and say there's something similar about that day to where we're living now, then this population explosion should be something shared. Let me explain this a little bit. Let me give you some statistics on this. In Noah's day, well, if, if you study the genealogy of chapter 5, like we did last week, you'll find that Adam was alive in the days of Methuselah. They were contemporaries. Methuselah was a contemporary of Noah, which means Adam, the first man created, talked to, could have known Methuselah, who knew Noah. Noah would have had second-hand information about Adam himself. Amazing. People lived a long time in those days, seven, eight, nine hundred years and with people living that long, the population of Earth would have grown at a rate unparalleled in human history. <laughs> Let me explain this. It's even been estimated by some that in the days before the flood, the population on planet Earth easily could have been in the billions. And we don't really think about that because we begin to read Genesis and we see the generations of Adam to, to Noah and we go, oh, that's just, you know, it's ten guys. That was ten guys over a thousand years. Let's look at that. If a man had four kids, a man had four kids and he lived long enough to see his kids have four kids of their own, in just five generations, their clan would reach a number of 96 people. Now, a generation is roughly 25, 30 years. Okay? So in five generations, or roughly 100, 100 years, a little over 100 years, this family that started out with a man having four children and staying alive long enough to see his four children have four children, they would have 96 people alive in their family at the end of five generations. In just 10 generations, that number jumps to 3,070. In 20 generations, the number reaches 3,120,000. And in 30 generations, the number, and this, we're talking this one guy's family, just one guy, the number in 30 generations soars to 3,220 million. That's a lot of kids. That's with a 100 year lifespan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in Genesis chapter 5, we have the equivalent of a minimum of 40 generations. In terms of years, we have roughly 40 generations between Adam and Noah. And remember what we just said in 30 generations with a 100 year lifespan. 3,220,000,000 people. And there are 40 generations in Genesis 5. Massive, massive, massive population growth. And we're talking just four kids per family. You live a thousand years or close to that. You live 900 years, even eight, 700 years. How many children can you have? And how many children's 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 children can be born? It is estimated by those who do these things that we could have been in the billions, possibly even more people alive at the days of Noah than are alive today on planet Earth. 
The flood was not an easy decision for God, folks. But if there were that many people on planet Earth, if the planet was that densely populated and only eight people believed in God, you can only imagine how dark it truly was. What about today? Interesting that it took, and you may have heard this before, but it took from the flood all the way up to 1867 for us to reach one billion people. It's a long time. The population after the flood grew very, very slowly. Part of that was because God limited man's lifespan. The man's days became around 100 years, 120 years, max. And after Noah, you see an immediate drop-off in the age of people. But it took that long. There were plagues, infant mortality, wars, not to mention, again, the lifespan of man. God cut it back. The Lord looked at man, and you'll see this also tonight. Well, you can look in verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. 900 years? No good with man. That is way too much time for man to be alive. Way too much time on his hands to figure out new ways of sinning. And so God limited it. And from, 18, from the flood to 1867, it took us that long to reach one billion people on planet Earth. Listen to this. From 1867 to 1935, that was just 68 years, it doubled to two billion. From 1935 to 1965, it went up to three billion. So in just 30 years, another billion people were added. It took all the way from the flood to 1867 to get one billion and it took 30 years from 1935 to 65 to get 1 billion. That's a population explosion. By the way, that was even during World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam. But listen to this. That was 3 billion in 1965. From 1965 to 1995, we went over 6 billion. So it doubled again. Now, estimates are that the population of planet Earth will double every 15 years. Fifteen years from today, we'll be looking at 12 billion people on planet Earth. Fifteen years after that, 24 billion. Fifteen years after that, 48 billion. How much do you think, how long do you think God's going to allow that to go on? As it stands today, there are an additional 250,000 people added to planet Earth every 24 hours. I think a lot of them are moving to Burlington. <laughs> Several years ago, you, you ever hear about the rat studies? Sociologists got together and they took a large number of rats and they placed them in a cage together and they placed the, them in a, in a space and a density roughly equal to that of New York City. And they discovered two very interesting facts about the rats. Number one, the rats in this environment neglected the baby rats. Mama rat in this environment began to neglect baby rats. Hmm? They need no more rats. Well, I, I, apparently that's how they felt. So much for mothers entering the rat race anyway. The second thing they learned was the rats in these cramped living conditions began turning on each other and eating each other even when there was adequate food supply. It got ugly. Late, uh, or L.A. talk show host uh, Dennis Prager is a Jewish talk show host on the radio I used to listen to when I li lived in California. He one time was talking about mob mentality, and this was just after there had been, I believe it was after the Who concert where so many people had been um, killed because the mob had just run them over. And he was saying, I have never seen anything positive come out of a mob. 
Never seen anything positive come out of a mob. Individuals within, you know, groups of people and small groups of people and, and even growing groups of people can do good things, but a mob never does anything good. Listen, the population of our world today is getting dense. And the more dense the population, the more dense the people. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. The more dense the population, the more dense the people. Following after their own lust, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Remember what Jesus said about Noah's day? Oh, they were eating and drinking and getting married, and, and their sons and daughters were getting married, and they were giving marriage, and they were going on as if nothing was going on until the first drop of rain came down. That's what Noah's day was like. Peter says that's what the last days are like. These mockers will say, everything just goes on the way it always has. But Peter says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. So for the person who says, hey, nothing's changed since the beginning of time, well, there was a big change. About a thousand years or so into, or nearly two thousand years into the beginning of time, from time on up, there was a massive worldwide cataclysmic flood. The word, by the way, for flood in the New Testament, in the Greek, is cataclysmo, or cataclysmuo. It's, it's the same word that we get cataclysm. And the word in Genesis for flood, specifically, it is the only time the word flood is used is in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. At least when you see it translated flood, the word here is only used here, speaking of an absolute catastrophe. There are other uh, stories of floods or places being flooded in scripture but it's not the same word the writer God is making it clear that the flood was horrible a catastrophe and that happened but in the end times dense people will come densely mocking in a densely populated world so that's the first sign of the times is the population explosion Noah's time massive population growth our time massive population growth that's a pretty stunning similarity. Second time of the time, second sign of the times. The propagation of evil. The propagation of evil. Now I use that word propagation not just to have another P word there, but it's specific. I'm talking about the I, I could have used the word procreation of evil. Look at verse one again. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he's also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. In the darkest hour of human history to date, a time when not only the Canaanites, but even the Sethites were spiraling into depravity, something happened. Something stunning happened. A type of sexual aberration that created a catastrophe. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Listen, uh, in verse 3, 
God said, my spirit shall not strive with man. It's interesting, two things. The word strive there literally means to plead the cause of. It's like a defense attorney striving for his client. And the word man there is Adam. So literally taken, the Lord said, my spirit shall not plead the cause of Adam forever because he is also flesh. Now, I'm not saying that he was specifically referring to Adam. He may have been. He may have been. But specifically, mankind, God had pleaded the cause of mankind over and over and over. And he's saying here, I'm not going to plead anymore. I'm not going to stand as a defense attorney anymore. Because he just keeps going out and getting himself into trouble all over again. In the generations from Adam to the flood, roughly 650 or 1656 years, man had achieved a global wickedness that, again, is unparalleled even today. Even with the internet and all that we have going on, although we're working really hard to catch up to Noah's day. But who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? And what was so wrong about the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men? Here's the deal. A couple of possibilities arrive. There are actually three possibilities, but the third one is so ridiculous and lame, I'm not going to mention it. Here are the two that have plausibility to them. Number one, the sons of God are Sethites, and the daughters of men are Canaanites. Sons of God are those who came through the line of Seth. Daughters of men came through the line of Cain. And this refers to the intermarriage of the generations of Seth and the degenerations of Cain. All right? Those believers intermarrying with unbelievers. Now, this is a plausible theory. And even one of my most respected Bible scholars that I study, J. Vernon McGee, this is his belief. He said it's very clear that it's the Sethites and the Cainites. I disagree. But there is some good case for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? By the way, that word Belial, that we all kind of know that's Satan. The word Belial literally means worthlessness. My dad had a, had a cousin whose name was Worth, and they all called him Worthless. Well, Satan, Satan is truly worthless. Belial, worthlessness. What harmony has Christ with worthlessness? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he also says in 1 Corinthians, listen, if, if you're a believer and you're going to get married, don't marry someone who is not a believer. And it's not a, a matter of, of, of shunning, but Paul knows, here's what happens. If you marry unbelief with belief, unbelief doesn't have any problem at all. Except being a little frustrated that you wake them up in the morning on your way to church. You know, up again, off doing that church stuff. That bugs, you know, the unbeliever. Those of you who have ever been in a marital situation where one believes and the other doesn't, it is painful. It is a struggle. What happens when it comes time to decide if the kids are going to be taught about Jesus or not? Who's going to do that? I have known so many women in my life whose husbands were unbelievers, and I've watched the struggle. One of my closest friends in high school, her mom had them at church every Sunday morning, her and her sister, the three women of the family, while dad sat home. And it was awful, and it was painful. However, a closer study of the text reveals some real problems with this thought, and it leads me to the second possibility, as wild as it may sound, 
and that's that the sons of God are actually fallen angels and the daughters of men are women so you read the verse and say wait a minute the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whoever they chose that's a little bizarre how can angels marry humans